Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to the Venture Stories by Village Global podcast. Here today with two very exciting guests, Kelsey Mellard and Kristen Baker-Spone. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us. Let's start with some introductions. Kelsey, can you give a brief introduction of, of what you're up to, where you're most excited right now, or what's most top of mind in the healthcare space? Certainly. So currently, I'm the CEO and a co-founder of Sitka, and we digitally triage patients and route them based on a complex set of data. In this case, we're starting with medical MRIs, rather. We're pretty early in the space, so we just closed our seed round in March, and we're hitting the market rapidly. We've been building a team. So given that, the space that I'm most interested in right now is really go-to-market and partnership generation with all of our potential customers that we have out there. Awesome. What's top of my, what's most exciting right now in terms of what you're thinking about broad health space? Really the alignment of, and it's a historic conversation that we've been having kind of the past decade, I would say, in healthcare is really just the alignment of the financial incentives in healthcare. So following the dollar and most of the dollar and the power of the dollar exists primarily with the payers and and the self-insured provider organizations. And so we're seeing a lot more activity pick up in that space, which is creating a little bit of a competitive landscape. And I would say starting to bend away from kind of the per member per month contracts that we've seen historically and really more on almost a fee-for-service in some ways and alignment on risk. So that's the part that I'm really excited about is that it feels like we're finally starting to gain traction in meeting patients where they're potentially able to have influence and, and would actually like to be influenced. Awesome. Kristen, how about you? Can you introduce yourself and, and talk about what's most exciting slash top of mind broader healthcare space? Sure. Happy to. So um, as as Kelsey mentioned, she is the, the founder and CEO of Sitka, and I'm a delighted investor in Sitka. Um, I made the transition to venture um, this past year after a career in operating within healthcare companies. So started at Castlight and helped scale that team from yeah, that company from Series A through IPO and then led the go-to-market in collective health. Um, so much like Kelsey, very interested in, in go to market, partnering closely with her. And, you know, in terms of what I see is, is interesting. I think Kelsey hit the nail on the head in terms of this, you know, rejiggering and thankfully, hopefully aligning of incentives. And I think the, you know, for, for decades, we've been talking about how do we bend the cost curve? And I think that we're starting to, to make some progress there. So let's start with go to market because I know you thought a lot about this, this Kristen, in terms of some of the elements being a bit counterintuitive or, or a lot of startups you know, having misconceptions around it. Talk a little bit about some of those and, and how you see go-to-market and how you, you know, advise startups in healthcare and, and investors to be, to be thinking about. Yeah, when I think about the, the go-to-market, you know, there are a few key differences that I see with healthcare versus other industries. And, and one of the main ones, exactly as Kelsey highlighted around incentives, um, but really understanding all of the different stakeholders and understanding their incentives. I mean, healthcare is one of the, the strange places where who buys a product, who uses a product, who pays for that product and who benefits from it can not only be different people, but even different institutions that often have different incentives and sometimes very misaligned incentives. And if you think of this versus a consumer company, all of those people are the same person. It's the person who bought that product. But in healthcare, you've got payers, providers, patients, ancillary parties, all of whom can touch can touch a particular product's go-to-market. And so really understanding those four key stakeholders and what their incentives are and how to how to really bring your product to market addressing each of their incentives um, is critical to, to driving adoption 
one of the things you talk a little bit about is the importance of thinking of like wedge strategy. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Sure. Yeah. the The way I think about the way I think about go to market in in healthcare and, and the wedge strategy is really just around how do you how do you drive that initial adoption. So you know, one of the the key things here is that scale really matters. So the ability to to impact change, to bend the cost curve, to bring lots of different stakeholders together when you have a lot of scale can be can be really effective but for a startup you know it's how do you how do you get there so what's your initial you know a de- demand curve or adoption curve that you're going after and making sure that that initial wedge that you find that initial user really loves your product that initial payment will get whether it's reimbursed or paid for in a certain way and that you can drive that adoption curve even if that's not where you end up right that that initial wedge can earn you the right to address that that broader market that you're looking to drive drive your product into, and so I think and this might be a great transition into you know just thinking about Sitka in particular. You know, when I think about Sitka, the opportunities for for what Kelsey and the Sitka team are building are, are massive. But I think they're starting with a really elegant use case and and driving change and and changing behavior in that particular area, but with the opportunity to expand much more broadly. Yeah, and Kelsey, why don't you talk a little bit about? I mean, we we touched on bending the cost curves. A little bit here, and I know you thought about it a lot, Kelsey, and, and we, it's been a sort of a broad trope in healthcare for a long time. Talk a little bit about what what it means and why it's been so so tough to do. Yeah, so uh, it's a, that's a heavy question, and um, <laughs> one that gets a lot of attention, and one that we actually see being segmented across kind of the spectrum. So when you think about bending the cost curve, as Kristen said, you know, it's really about alignment of the dollar. And everyone is willing to kind of take on various components of that dollar, if you will. And so now, as a result of that, that's why you see so many startups in in the healthcare space, startups focused on oncology, startups focused on musculoskeletal, startups focused on triage and you know doctor on demand and house calls and, and all of these sorts of services. And it's really difficult to bend the cost curve because of all of these companies that have a tiny little wedge in but can't expand that wedge to actually take on the entire financial risk of of a human being. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, very importantly is kind of understanding where the ability to take on and move, move the dollar is and where, and, and, and the reality of where the market is. And so the way that I think about this is there's this spectrum of the market and folks that are really willing to wholeheartedly bend the cost curve and are in a position to do so, which is equally important. And so if we take self-insured employers or payers or even physicians who are starting to play in this game of risk, meaning that they're going to become financially re- responsible for how much this population actually costs. You know, we've, we've seen over the past five years a great adoption of things like bundled payment. And those are episodically driven. They're highly managed. There's low downside risk. The episode ends. The episode begins. It's a very clear-cut ability to influence the market. Then we see, you know, on that, again, continuing uh, kind of to the right of that spectrum would be all the way to full capitation. You can have partial capitation in, um, you know, only downside or upside ACOs, accountable care organizations, for example. And so, you know, this this question of bending the cost curve really depends on how much money you're controlling in the market. And so the more money you can control in the market, the increased likelihood is that you can actually bend the cost cost curve. And the way we think about that at Sitka is we're starting with all musculoskeletal care. And, you know, musculoskeletal conditions are rampant in the U.S. Over 50% of us are going to experience it in our lifetime. 
and it's the number one cause for disability. And so we're starting there because of how much overutilization and overtreatment happens in that space and also inappropriate utilization and treatment. And so then that kind of takes us down this whole other rabbit hole, Eric, which is around just the variation of costs based on geographic access to healthcare providers and, and your zip code. And so now, you know, the conversation is really focused around social determinants of health, including zip code being one of those determinants as to how much you're going to cost as an individual, what the access is to the healthcare providers, and what the level of sophistication is of the provider community around you. So that's a long-winded answer to your very brief question, and, and I'll pause there, but hopefully that brings us in the right direction. Chris, any, any responses or reactions to that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think Kelsey laid that out incredibly clearly for, for a lot of folks out there. And I think, you know, one of the, the key things that sometimes I catch myself in and recognize is that I've been mired in this industry for well over a decade, I think, as has Kelsey. And so we often tend, yeah. you know, take a, take some assumptions for, um, for how we talk about things and we, we use acronyms, but I think she did a really great job of explaining that. I think the one other thing I would add is just, you know, it's not just around kind of geography. I think as, as Kelsey highlighted, healthcare, much like politics, gets, gets very local very quickly, but also recognizing kind of the local dynamics of market power. I think Kelsey highlighted, you know, who controls the money can control a lot in the, in the industry, but it's not just kind of broadly and, and kind of money in absolute numbers, but local market power can, can actually kind of help help dictate and help shape what that local market looks like. An example just being, you know, we see a ton of consolidation across health systems. Um, so they're amassing power. We're seeing continued consolidation across insurance companies. You know, the, the ASI approval looks like it's just going through. And so, you know, the, you kind of wonder who who gets stuck in the middle, right? What are they kind of consolidating market power against? And on the payer side, on the people who actually kind of bear risk and pay the bills, you've got the government and you've got self-insured employers and people. And so the government amass a lot of money and, and has a significant amount of market power and on a broad basis, um, and, and Kelsey has much deeper expertise in that one. But you know, when I think about employers and consumers, they're they're getting pretty stuck, and they aren't consolidating their market power in the way that some of these other players are. So it's just another key consideration as we think about how do we how do we align incentives, how do we bend the cost curve, and how do we drive change. The fact that a lot of the people that are footing the bill are, are kind of diminishing in market power on a local level. Yeah, Kristen, I think you bring up a really good point there around kind of some of the, some of the policies that we're seeing come out from the federal government today and that have historically come out. And Eric, to kind of bring us full circle back to your original question around go to market, you know, go to market is largely dependent too on what the policy landscape looks like. And so we've seen, mm -hmm. you know, a ton of successful companies be created, be acquired, be spun out again based on policies from the federal government. And I think you know, when I was at Navi Health um, building out their bundled payment program, the benefit that I had is that I had a government deadline looming for deals to get made. And right now, the market is so overwhelmed with solutions that I think sometimes our, our buyers, if you will, and those buyers being, you know, benefit managers and chief medical officers of these risk-based organizations, there's so many choices and there's no looming deadline which does kind of, in, you know, introduce a whole nother uh, kind of go to market, market fit, and then obviously sales and um, partnership development cycle that, that can be quite difficult to navigate at times. Yeah. And Kelsey, I think you, you hit on a really key point that, you know, oftentimes people will shy away from, from healthcare because of, you know, the pen stroke risk around regulation um, and the regulatory environment. 
I think what, you know, what we've seen and what you definitely saw at Navi is that there can be pen stroke opportunity, right? The changes in policy can actually open up new markets. It's not necessarily something to be feared. It's just something to, to study and be aware of. Yeah, because I think that's a really good good point. And I was actually, I, I co-chair Health Data Plus, and one of the main topics, you know, that we talk about is the proximity to policymakers that that convenient, that convenient kind of conference allows for. And it is an incredible opportunity that, that we as kind of a broader Silicon Valley community have to associate, understand, and actually influence policy. And I advise a couple of companies out here that have been completely enamored with the fact that you can actually write the government an email <laughs> as to what you think should be done and they will listen to it. And so I, I think that that lends to regardless of who's in power um, at the, at the um, presidential level. I think the folks at CMS and HHS really are true partners in our capacity to actually shift the market and actually bend the cost curve in healthcare. And, and folks are eager to do that. Curious for your guys' advice for, for you know, let's say, for, for startup, for entrepreneurs, for really smart technologists who are perhaps new to new to healthcare and maybe built consumer businesses where, you know, very different, obviously, in a lot of product. Um, whereas here, it's, it's it's very different. What frameworks they should be thinking about regarding go-to-market, you know, like, how should they be thinking about policy opportunities and discovering those or, or other sort of frameworks as it relates to go-to-market? Maybe, maybe, Kristen, what advice would you, would you have for the smart technologists who are looking to build something healthcare, but, but who are new to it? Yeah, I, I think that the... For folks that are kind of brand new to healthcare, it's get the right folks around the table because the right folks around the table, whether they're investors, whether they're advisors, I mean, and Kelsey is very involved in advising other companies out there. You know, I think a lot of us are in healthcare to try and to try and change it for for the better, and so very eager to to lend advice and and to to work really closely. I think you know when you bring folks around the table that have had decades of experience in here. You don't necessarily even need them specifically on your team, but having them around the table, it can really just help you see around corners. And so it's, you know, you don't necessarily know the right way to go to go to market within healthcare, but we definitely know some wrong ways to, to avoid and where some of the bodies are buried. So in terms of frameworks, I'd say, you know, really understand where the bodies are buried and, and for companies that have tried to do something that you're, that you're attacking. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is, you know, kind of coming back to that, when you bring your product to market and when you're, when you're looking to sell into it, really understand who those stakeholders are and what their incentive to, to buy or use or pay for is. And then the final thing I'd say is do not underestimate the importance of, of workflow and in, in care delivery in particular, but also in terms of, you know, whether it's benefits or, or things like that. And that's often where fantastic ideas and fantastic potential products can die on the vine. If you try and change too many people's behavior across the workflow to get your, your product into whether it's patients' hands or into providers' hands, kind of a long-winded way of, of getting there. You make a really good point, um, specifically on workflow. I think there's a ton of good products, especially as we continue to expand to, you know, AI, blockchain, all of these buzzwords, and there's incredible solutions <laughs> that don't have alignment of motivation or the depth of understanding that it takes to what are the barriers to adoption based on existing workflow? And then what are the incentives to get someone to actually change their day-to-day -day workflow? And building a product that, you know, an incredible technology team can build is only good as, as far as it can actually be understood and adopted into the existing complex, you know, UM or pre-auth processes or all of these historic black boxes that are really perplexing to not only our patient facing folks, but, but those who are new to technology or new to healthcare rather as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and kind of building on that, I think taking a step further, you, you kind of don't get to really understand workflow until you're actually out there working with folks. And so, you know, as as early as possible, engage that potential buyer, or better yet, engage two or three entities that you think might be potential buyers. You know, oftentimes when a healthcare startup is going to market, they don't necessarily know whether the buyer is going to be a health system, a health insurer, or a self-insured employer. And so to the extent that you can have those those conversations and experiment early and understand that is great. But it, you know, on the flip side, I'd also say a lot of those companies will will then want to pilot with you, and you know, you still also need to be very mindful of avoid death by pilot um, at all costs. Zooming out a bit, uh, Kelsey, if you weren't working on Sitka or addressing the problem space that Sitka is addressing, and say you were starting a, and I don't know if it's a good idea, but a, an incubator where you were uh, spinning up maybe three or four companies at the same time, and you were in charge of picking picking the ideas or the problem spaces of which the entrepreneurs who, you know, assume have any skill set needed to, to build these companies will go have just pure, like, you know, idea perspective or sub, you know, yeah, subspaces within healthcare that you think there's real opportunity or, or you really want to explore. What might you slash these, uh, these entrepreneurs be doing? Where would you recommend they go look? So I have a couple favorite spots right now outside of the, the Sitka space. And we, you know, our wedge in at Sitka, we really see it as starting with musculoskeletal to continue to expand and provide an increased transparency to patients as a shared decision-making tool and really empower them in a way that they've never actually felt like they've been teamed with the physician community. So aside from like bonding and creating trust in, in the pathways that we're creating in Sitka, I'm also interested in a space that I've been for, for a while is kind of the post-acute care space and the, and the senior housing space. So obviously the baby boomer generation is getting a lot of attention, but I think we're having a hard time adopting practices that are going to stick and actually bend the cost curve and, and create value for our seniors and our payer communities. So I'm really interested in kind of the the broader post-acute senior housing space. That's a super interesting space. And then I think there's a lot of predictive models that we have yet to see brought forth and scale at the at the level that we can. One of my biggest frustrations in the way that we kind of tackle healthcare is that, you know, typically we tackle it like one little ailment at a time, as opposed to like, I would prefer to see the same doctor kind of for my entire life. And I and I understand that my needs may change as I continue to evolve as a as a as a human. But the quick anecdote of that is like I saw my pediatrician until I was 21, and he basically kicked me out of his clinic. And he's like, "Kelsey, you can't keep coming home from college um, <laughs> to see me." And I was like, "But why, Doctor Green? Like you delivered me, you know me, you know my family, like you know everything about me that I feel is really important for you to provide good care for me." And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that's actually what patients want. They want continuity. They want someone that they feel like knows them, knows you know, kind of the home setting of which they reside. And I think we're still longing for a solution that is sincere and trustworthy and and actually bridges the existing gaps between the the patient and provider community. I'd say one little um, kind of just irritation that I have, too, is that also in healthcare, we seem to segment patients as if we're not one of them. And I think that's also kind of a, a mindset that needs to shift of, as entrepreneurs, as investors, as, as consumers. We're all we're all patients at some point in our life. And, and recognizing that we walk in those shoes is is super valuable as you're building companies in, into that space. Chris, how would you answer the same question if, if you were you know, incubating uh, a company in, in social capital, where would you, you know, really want to explore or a couple or a few ideas? Or, you know, how would you even approach the question? I mean, it's, you know, I get the benefit of 
of sitting where I am and and actually seeding and working with a number of different companies. So, you know, it's hard to pick kind of two or three particular areas. But I think a couple of areas that are just, you know, generally under addressed and, and maybe starting to be addressed, but I think that we haven't figured out some of the right companies to be built around there. Completely agree with Kelsey, just in the, the senior market, post-acute care being a great example, Medicare Advantage being another example that's kind of white hot right now with a lot of phenomenal and, and really interesting and innovative approaches there. I think companies that are just, that are really driving towards, you know, driving towards outcomes, how we measure those outcomes, not just around cost containment and health, but also satisfaction and well-being. Um, and it's really, you know, some things are, are hard to measure, but if we don't start measuring them, we won't get there. So that, that kind of first area around broadly senior care and, and healthcare more broadly. The second is senior healthcare more broadly. Um, the second area is just around the, the underlying data. Um, and so, you know, Kelsey, I think knows this, <laughs> knows this all too well with healthcare data palooza and, um, and just being in this industry for so long, just the infrastructure upon which so many systems and companies are attempting to be built on. Um, in healthcare from financial to healthcare information uh, to health information and, and electronic medical records. That infrastructure is just, it's so brittle. And the, in order to really unleash the power of data to drive towards better outcomes, to drive towards better patient experiences, to reduce hospital error rates and, and things like that, we need systems that are actually built on a modern tech stack uh, that can unleash the power of that data. And so we're, we're seeing those being done in kind of these one-offs, but not necessarily at a kind of a broader systemic level or even at, at kind of a middleware level to be able to to separate from the underlying infrastructure. So I think that there are some companies that are making strides there, but, but that's another area where I think that there's there's so much opportunity. I want to say, uh, move to our request for startups portion of the episode where I sort of mentioned a few areas and then ask you where you want to see either companies emerge or even you know, experimentation or, or, or disruption or, or even just why 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 those areas are, are interesting right, right now or, or not interesting. One, I mean, Kristen, we start is, is benefits. I know you think a lot about benefits. Talk a little bit, educate perhaps the you know entrepreneurs who are, who are new um, as to why that's an interesting space and, and what some opportunities there might look like. Yeah. So in, in terms of benefits and um, health benefits, but I think that benefits leaders oftentimes think about about the role and scope much more broadly. So I'm, I'm talking about benefits leaders that are inside of self-insured employers. So just to, to set context there. So what we're seeing is, I think, definitely a shift from looking at something where it's just health benefits and then, you know, life insurance, disability, et cetera, sits in another area. And, and whether it's pension or retirement sits in another area, I think employers are really starting to make that shift towards viewing their employee and their employee's journey as an as an entire employee journey a key component of which is healthcare benefits but another key component is financial benefits associated with you know with retirement and savings and so what we're seeing is employers are, are really looking at that whole person and trying to meet them where we are i think innovative employers are and and driving towards the fact that they also still have significant constraints. I mean, the fact that healthcare costs continue to rise for them means that they're trying to make trade-offs. Oftentimes those trade-offs need to come from, from somewhere. But I think for, for startups that are looking to address the, the employer space and the benefit space, really thinking about not just healthcare, but financial wellness and well-being associated with that can be really key. And then the second component around benefits is also understanding that that these leaders, these decision makers and these employers are just being bombarded with point solution after point solution with, with solution after solution. And there's no kind of consolidated aggregator that's bringing this all together in a very clear way that's then bringing it to 
to the employee and, and kind of bringing it all together. I mean, Kelsey gave the example of her, you know, her pediatrician that she wanted to see past 21, you know, for an employee um, and, and for a benefits team, you know, they can't be that one stop, you know, come here and ask me all your questions about maternity leave and which 401k allocation to do and which, you know, short term disability to do like they can't be that expert. And so companies that are really trying to, to drive towards that, and that's what we were building at, at Collective Health from the administrator tr- perspective, bringing that all together in one place, and then meeting the employee where they are. But we're seeing a number of different examples of how that how that gets brought to, to market for for benefits leaders. But I think that there's significant opportunity there, not only to address employees across the spectrum, but also to to try and bring that all together. How about insurance? Where, where would you like to see people uh, innovate or, or experiment uh, with an insurance? And why, why is that such a you know attractive um, you know, white space? Sure. Within um, within health insurance specifically, and and kind of even narrowing the scope to just health insurance within the employer lens. I mean, you know, my view is that employers, you know, on their own are, are going to have a tough time containing healthcare costs. And so offering plans and, and solutions and frankly, networks that can really meet employees needs in a great way can help drive towards the cost containment, but also the, the choice that people need. So said differently, I do see us, I do believe that uh, that in the long run, health benefits will move the way towards defined contribution um, rather than defined benefit, much in the way that 401k replaced pensions if we can't get these costs under control. And so how employers handle that, whether it's offering more narrow networks, um, you know, incorporating more ACOs um, in order to be able to, to do cost containment and, and get providers aligned um, with driving outcomes and, and lowering costs. You know, I think that there are going to be a lot of different opportunities to innovate around there. But I do think that, the, you know, if, if we can't stem this tide of rising healthcare costs, I think um, employers, a lot of whom will be kind of forced into that, that position of, of moving towards defined contribution to, in, instead of defined benefit. Eric, I just elaborate on, the, on like the broader insurance market that I think is really interesting. And I had the opportunity to work at the largest insurance company in the United States, which is Medicare and Medicaid, but then also United Health Group. And I think one of the things that we're going to start seeing as we move towards, you know, this shift of risk is actually a shift of what is paid for. And so historically, we've been really, really good as a system paying for sick care. But like, I would consider myself pretty healthy. And I don't really feel like my insurance company cares. And it'd be really nice if somehow um, I reap the benefits that I like work out and I eat healthy and I do all the things right that we're supposed to be doing. And so I think actually with this broader consumerism, you know, kind of quote unquote, that's happening in healthcare, that shift is actually driving insurance companies to think differently about how they even engage with the beneficiaries. And so now we're seeing, you know, a lot more kind of better designed, um, more thoughtful messaging to the beneficiaries and the members of these insurance plans, as opposed to let me pull out my insurance card when I show up to the ER. And that's my interaction with my insurance company. And then I get this EOB and then I ultimately get this gargantuous bill that, um, you know, in many instances leaves folks tragically, you know, bankrupt. And so, you know, I think if we can start to shift um, even what we pay for and then the mechanisms of how we pay for it and how we engage the consumers, those will be some other key themes that I, I'll be looking for over the next several years. Yeah, Kelsey, I, I would love to get there. It still feels very, very early on that front, unfortunately. I think we're just starting to, you know, to get reimbursement and payments for monitoring, um, remote monitoring of chronic care. And so I, I'm with you. I, I hope we get there faster than it seems like the pace that we're currently on. 
I want to broaden it to a few other spaces. Chris, how about uh, consumer, like direct-to-consumer applications? Where are you uh, excited? Yeah, I think that um, you know, for direct-to-consumer, I think that's an area that um, that I've long, frankly, avoided um, for healthcare. I think that consumers in our country have tended to shy away from actually paying for for their own healthcare. So it's it can be really hard to build a company based on that um, without having some sort of whether it's scale or, or insurance strategy associate reimbursement strategy associated with it. Um, that being said, I think that we are we are seeing a number of, kind of key signals towards this. I think the first one is really around you know all of the direct to consumer pharmaceutical companies that are getting built you know really around cash pay. Some with an insurance backbone, but the vast majority around cash pay. So Hims, Keeps, uh, Roman on the the men's side, Pill Club on the women's side, um, and a number of others out there, Lemonade. Um, so I think that we're seeing. That being said, I think those you know kind of are much more transactional and and look and feel a lot more like an e-commerce product purchase, a transaction, and and cash associated with it. So it can be pretty different from from kind of a, a traditional way of thinking about consumerism and healthcare. I guess we're talking about direct to consumer, but yes. So those are direct to consumer examples. Other direct to consumer examples, you know, I think that the the provider space is really interesting. So whether it's one medical, forward, motion, crossover, paladina, a lot of these others, um, some of whom are doing direct to consumer, some of whom are, are partnering with employers in order to to get to scale. Um, I think the, you know, kind of bringing it back to the fact that the consumer consumer preferences are becoming more and more important, as Kelsey highlighted, I think, I think is key. On the direct-to-consumer side of healthcare, so it's a really interesting question, in part because I just came from a company that is largely direct-to-consumer focused, being Honor. And Honor provides home care. So I think there's segments of the healthcare market that is totally used to and actually expects to pay for things out of pocket because the way some benefit design programs have been set up in the past. However, what it feels like is actually happening when we target direct-to-consumer, it feels like we're segmenting the market even more, those with means to pay and those without. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes I get really concerned that while all of these innovations are incredible and that, you know, I can access some of them and, you know, all of these folks, especially in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's not really reflective of the way the rest of America consumes healthcare because most folks don't one, expect to pay out of pocket, two, have the means to do so, or three, are so frustrated that they're doing this as last resort. So I think a lot of us do it as a way to kind of jump around the historic bureaucracy of trying to get to see the physician that day when you need it, as opposed to waiting four weeks. So one of the the things that I worry about is really, you know, and I, I'll put on kind of like my former government hat is like, this, these are incredible innovations, but how does this apply to a Medicaid population? And is there an application and are we going to get there? And so I think certainly there's instances, you know, like Honor, where um, Honor is focused on direct-to-consumer and private pay. And eventually, you know, over periods of time, I could imagine a world of which they were able to serve Medicaid because of the efficiencies that they've garnered as a result of going direct-to-consumer out of the gates. So, you know, it it may be a slower um, process than, than we would like to see, but Certainly, there's segmentation in the market and certainly pockets of the healthcare market that are totally um, ready and able and willing to pay out of pocket um, to get the care that they think um, they deserve. What about uh, this space is somewhat been dubious about it. People selling products to, to doctors, uh, you know, providers, companies trying to provide a space. Yeah, so I think, you know, similarly to kind of 
the benefit manager space, it's a really clogged area. And if you're a physician in market right now, you're just trying to get through your day, seeing the patients in clinic, trying to find the ones that you can actually have an adequate intervention on based on your skill set. And you're doing that, you know, multiple times a day. And eventually maybe you're making rounds at the local hospital or things like that. So, you know, the conversation for selling to physicians, I think, is, is also shifting um, in part because there's a recognition of the severity of the physician burnout. So we're starting to see more solutions go to physicians. But I think the sales cycle, the adoption cycle is is quite tough. And, you know, similar to the consumers, the segmentation of the provider uh, market looks looks just as kind of disastrous, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that everyone has their you know own medical profession association. They have their own rules. They have their own regulations. And so it's really hard as an entrepreneur to take an application that would work within like orthopedics and apply it to oncologists because the way that we consume uh, as patients and as and as direct and as consumers is very different. If I have a knee problem versus I'm diagnosed with cancer, and so there's recognition of the complexity of the processes that work, and I think those those recognitions are reflected in the complexity of the sales cycle to physicians as well as just the overwhelm the overwhelming kind of burden that our physicians face when just trying to practice medicine. Yeah, Kelsey, I think you made a really important point there just around the difference between whether it's selling to or designing a solution for orthopedists versus oncologists. Um, You know, the two things I think of when you're selling to providers is first around mindshare and then second kind of coming to that point of of workflow. You know, when you're selling to a primary care physician or, or you're convincing them to adopt a certain area, like be aware of what percentage of their patient population or what percentage of their mind share your product actually addresses. If it's something that they can use for every single patient, great. And it makes their life, lives 10 times better, wonderful. But if it's something that really only applies to, say, pediatric patients with, uh, with a particular, with asthma, for example, that might be a really critical piece to address or a critical solution to provide, but it might only represent less than 5% of their patient base. And so it's just going to be a really tough not only sell, but then also to drive usage and adoption from that provider versus if you're selling something that's specifically designed around knee surgery to an orthopedist and they do, you know, 70% of their procedures are related to knee surgery, then that's something where you've got significant mind share um, and relevance for that particular provider. So, you know, just be mindful of what is that, that workflow, both from the purchase and use and then what percentage of their of their patient population that they work with, are you really addressing and, and helping them with? Kristen, I think equally important to the patient population that you're addressing of theirs is, of course, what is their payer landscape look like? Who's paying them? Yeah, what percentage exactly. of their patients are Medicaid versus Those are interracial? Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, segmenting their own population is really important to actually creating a, a valuable product for them. There's a, a matrix, I'm, you know, envisioning a matrix on a whiteboard right now that can be just across all of the different payers, the different patient populations and the different indications um, and how you address each of the stakeholders, their workflow, their reimbursement incentives and, and things like that. So it's coming to mind. What about, are there spaces in which you either are not touching or or you'd say, hey, that's it's really hard. And if a you know talented entrepreneur friend came to you, you, you might try to steer them in a different direction. Maybe you know some people might say EMRs, or some people might say wearables. Or, those spaces or any others, something you would say, you know what, probably explore somewhere else. This is really hard right now. Well, I I think that sentiment of it's really hard right now could be applied to any part of healthcare. To be honest, like it's it's <laughs> not an easy venture. You've mentioned you know EMRs a couple of times, so we'll start there. I think. 
you know, EMR is actually an incredible place to start because the epics and the centers of the world are designed for billing purposes and not actual patient intervention and clinical flow. And so it lends right back to the conversation we were having earlier about the physician burnout. And it's like our physicians are burned out in large part because we've built these click-based systems with drop-down menus that have very little relevant information to the attending provider um, to actually leverage. And so, you know, I would actually say, like, go run fast. I would love to see some more usable kind of software developed in, in that space. For me, there's not one space that's like completely off limits right now for, you know, for company creation and, and innovation, just in large part because of the, the level of bureaucracy and the level of exhaustion that um, our healthcare professionals face. And our consumers face to get it. And, you know, as we look at it kind of a, as an, as a world, you know, we still have, you know, a higher maternal death rate than we should as a, as a very developed country. So you, and that's just one example, but you could look at every category and you should say, well, as a country, we're more sophisticated in that, yet our, our outcomes don't reflect that. So, so my advice would be there, there's not a, there's not a bad place right now to go. There's lots of opportunity, lots of competition. Um, which I think will spur greater adoption and, and greater ability to scale ultimately and, and actually design the system that, that we'd like to actually live in. I agree with Kelsey. I don't think there's anything off limits. I do think that there are better ways of going about addressing certain markets versus others. And often what I see uh, with folks that are coming particularly from, from maybe a more traditional tech space into healthcare is this view that they can potentially just go it alone and go full stack. I think that full stack can definitely be done. It's, um, you know, you just need to, to build kind of the entire company in it, um, the structure in mind. But oftentimes partnerships and working with the right, with a number of other folks across the industry can be really critical to getting things off the ground. So I'd say, you know, just be very mindful of where you're going into. Uh, which space you're going into and um, and how to really get off the ground and and don't think you necessarily need to go it alone. The right partnerships um, can get you access and scale in a way that you couldn't get there on your own in the time frame you want to get there. Let's close perhaps by talking about some you know last remaining sort of either words of advice or uh, advice on how to avoid perhaps pitfalls that entrepreneurs and investors might make in, in how you know because they're uniquely different. One of the things Chris, I think you talked about is you know how your sales cycle is sort of like much longer than we than we usually think it is in healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about that and any other things that that come to mind as as uh, as our listeners should know? Sure. Yeah. It's um you know I think just be be very mindful about how long sometimes things take to to gain adoption and and make sure that you know your company is capitalized for it, your investors understand, and and that you've done kind of your homework to really get get a sense of how long things take because driving you know driving adoption and, and driving those sales cycles can just be really challenging, whether you're selling to employers where it's both very seasonal and very long for some of the larger employers, as well as provider and large health systems where, you know, that is a an enterprise SaaS sale on steroids with a number of different um, different key stakeholders, each of whom can be champions or, or veto um, within a sales cycle. So just be be very mindful of, um, of approaching those enterprise sales and, and as thoughtful as you can around them. Kelsey, would you add anything to that? No, I think that's a really good kind of overview of, of considerations to have. The other thing I'd say is, is just, you know, don't go in this alone. Know that there are a ton of other people trying to solve really difficult problems that are happy to lend an ear mm-hmm. or share a cup of coffee at, at times. And it's it's hard. And some of the best conversations that I've had have been with fellow entrepreneurs who have done this more times than I have. And uh, it's been really insightful to have that community of folks around. And and the other the only other thing I would say is 
you know, having Kristen on the phone, who's an investor, uh, you know, leverage your investor because you, you've selected them for a reason. And so it's been wonderful to have what, what feels like a true partnership with Kristen and, and our other investors at first round and homebrew that, that, that does feel like a team and, and we've unified as such. And so, um, leverage the folks you've selected to have around the table. Awesome. Kristen Kelsey, this has been a fantastic episode. Where can people, uh, you know, follow you online or, or learn more about, uh, and what, what should people stay tuned for? what's upcoming yeah certainly so uh you can learn more about sitka at trustsitka.com. sign up for our newsletters and follow us there and obviously on twitter and, and all of the social media outlets so all of the things where that's where that's where we are yeah and uh kristen you can find me on twitter at, at kbakes and uh on linkedin feel free to ping me and as as kelsey mentioned there are a lot of people um out in the industry that are excited and eager to help other entrepreneurs bring solutions to market and You've got two of them on this podcast right now, and um, there's there's dozens, if not hundreds, more out there. Chris and Kelsey, this has been a, such a great episode. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Eric. Thanks, Thanks Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.